Good afternoon, listeners, and welcome back to the Total Football Analysis Podcast, your weekly dose of all things football tactics and coaching related. I'm your host, Adam Scully, and we've another exciting episode for you all today. Last week, we brought you an hour-long episode with Dean Holden, where Dean was so incredibly open and honest about his coaching career so far and the trials and tribulations of his time at Bristol City. Today, we bring you almost a sequel to that episode by speaking to Paul Simpson, who worked as Dean's assistant head coach during his tenure and later became the caretaker manager of the Robins when Holden was unfortunately relieved of his duties. Paul is currently the manager of Carlisle United and has done an exceptional job with the Blues, saving the club from a sure relegation to the National League last season, while the side now sit in the playoff places in what has been an incredible turnaround. Paul's coaching career has certainly been illustrious, having been at numerous clubs, including Rochelle Preston and Shrewsbury as the head coach, as well as being the assistant manager to Steve McLaren at Derby County and Newcastle United and Dean Holden at Bristol, while also guiding England's under-20s to World Cup victory in 2017. I was incredibly excited to get Paul on to discuss the ins and outs of football management and his career so far, while getting some amazing nuggets of information for all our listeners to take away and learn from. As always, please rate the podcast five stars to help it grow and reach as many as possible. Throughout the world and share on social media as well as with your family and friends. It really helps in our goal to provide you all with an insight into how football operates behind the curtain. I hope you all enjoy the episode and without further ado, I'll stop waffling and finally go speak to Paul. Paul, thanks so much for coming on to the podcast today. How have you been? Good. Yeah, very good. Really busy. Um, game's coming thick and fast and it's uh, it's all about preparation, recovery, ready to go again for the next one. But no, it's uh, it's been a, a good start to the season. So we're all fine on that front. How happy have you been with the team's progression since last season? Because obviously last season there was, when you took over, I think they were sitting 23rd and then you, you, you know, you, brought them to safety and now you're cracking on, you're doing fantastically in the league. Yeah, I think um it's been a it's been a really positive change. Um there's a there's a different mentality in the club and I think that's the biggest shift that we've had to get. Um there were, everybody was all negative and down with things that were going on. So we've managed to lift that but you know it, that happens by winning games of football. The players have gone out, they've won the games and and that gives the supporters something to cling to and gives a positive vibe around it. So that's been the biggest shift, and um, that's been the, the probably the biggest pleasing thing for me as well. You know, the last weekend on a horrible rainy day, we got five thousand six hundred in for our game against Doncaster, mm-hmm. and that's a real plus for us. And hopefully, we can keep them with us by by continuing to win games. Will you say that in order to boost confidence, you need to win games? Tactically, when you took over, obviously you were sitting in the relegation zone. How did you, on the pitch, look to win games? Well, did you look to change? Thing, sorry, is what I'm asking. What yeah, I, I think the first thing I did was um, I changed the, the the system that we were playing. Um, now, I'm a big believer that systems and formations don't win games for you, but they they can certainly help you with your organisation. So. When I it happened really quickly with me, I got a phone call on a Tuesday night from from one of the Carlisle directors to say, would I be interested in coming in and and stepping into the club and and trying to help them get out of trouble, just for a short term? And I said, yeah, go on. I'll uh, once you've dealt with with the the, the sacking of of Keith Keith Millen, then I, I'll come in. I said, but I won't come in until that's been done. So I, I literally went upstairs, went on to Y Scout, looked at because I hadn't been following Carlisle's um, sort of team, the what who, who'd been playing, what shape or anything. I just looked at the group that they had and the team that had been playing. And they were playing with a, a back four, and it was a very, very young, inexperienced back four. And I just thought, that's a problem straight away. I looked at some of the goals they conceded, and they were conceding some soft goals, so the change that I made was I went to um, a back three um, and I put three centre-backs in with the view that it was more just to give that extra body in, a little bit of security, a little bit of stability. And then we did a real short amount of work because there was hardly any time between that first game. And the players just took to it. Um, they, they applied themselves really well. So I changed the shape. Um, and I'm led to believe, in all fairness, it was something that Keith Millen was thinking of doing as well. Um, he, he talked to the staff about that, um, but I just went in and did it. And um, it worked. And then suddenly they get a win. 
everything seems to snowball and everybody gets a little bit of confidence from that and and things went went from strength to strength after that so that i think that was the initial thing that we did i changed the shape it was a different voice for them um, which is silly as that sounds sometimes that works um there was no I can assure everybody there was no miracle cure. It literally was the players going out and performing to a different level that they had been previously. And when you take over in such a situation, as you said, the games do come thick and fast. So you have to almost ease yourself back into the job. You know, so when you take over, obviously you you'll want to do things certain ways, but maybe you don't have the time to. How do you kind of transition yourself into that role from just almost dropping yourself into the deep end? I don't think there is a transition. You are literally just thrown in at the deep end, and it's it's a sink or swim. Um, and and that was that was the one of the factors that I had to weigh up when I was trying to work out whether it was the right thing for me. Um, I was out of work after leaving Bristol City a couple of months earlier. I, I had this idea that I wanted to go back into management. I knew it had to be the right opportunity because. As it stood, I wasn't getting a job um, and I'm really not sure who would have taken a gamble on me to give me a job. So I, I had that as one side of it, but on the other side of it, I knew that if I went in and failed, the chances are I would never get another opportunity in management. So it was a little bit of a gamble. I suppose in a way it was a, a gamble with a bit of knowledge because I knew about the football club, I knew about the area because I'd been there before. So those things combined just made me think, you know what, sod it, let's let's go. I'm sitting at home doing nothing, watching games on TV, doing, uh, I was working for Radio Lancashire, doing some comment, co-commentary stuff and some reviewing and a preview and reviewing of the Lancashire games. So I was keeping my hand in, but it wasn't what I wanted. I wanted the day-to-day, I wanted the... In a way, I suppose you could say I wanted the stress back of, of being involved in that technical area and being involved in games where the result actually mattered for us. Yeah. Um, and I just thought, let's give it a go. And thankfully, my wife Jackie backed me on it as well and said, nah, come on, let's let's go and see what it where it takes us. And were you thinking long term then with Carlisle when you started to pick up momentum and then obviously you had the summer to kind of plan and now you're... I think you're six on the table at the minute, which is incredible considering where yeah, no, I, I don't think initially I certainly wasn't thinking long term. I, I was given, um, I was told, I, I, you know what, I think it was 15 games. I think it was 15 games, something mm-hmm. like 10 and a half weeks. And I thought, you know what, 10 and a half weeks, I'll go and do that. And then I'll, I'll little trot off back to Derbyshire and go back to my home and, and see what comes next. And then... I think the biggest thing that persuaded me that it was worth staying was the the reaction that I got from the supporters. They were just absolutely fantastic from day one. Um, came in and they backed us and results kept flowing for us and we got into a good position. I had a conversation with the directors. Once we were safe and I knew, you know, mathematically we were safe, I had a conversation with the directors. They said that they wanted me to stay I discussed how I, what things I would need to to get changed to give us a chance, um, and it, you know, people always say you have to be given a big budget. I knew that I wasn't going to get a big budget because that's where the football clubs at. We are still probably in relation to the last three years, we're probably still bottom four or five in the league in terms of the budget. But they were prepared to let me make some changes. And one of the biggest ones was bringing in a head of recruitment because we had no recruitment plan in place. So I was allowed to do that. And I just thought, let's give it a go. You know, I might I might never get another opportunity and let's, let's just take the chance and see where it takes us. And so far, it's really good. We're really, really early. Um, into the the whole building the the, the change of, yeah. of the model that I want to bring into the club, um, and hopefully it'll keep being being moved on in a positive way. Well, that brings me on to my next next question. Though is that how have you looked at kind of change towards the style of football that you want to play and the the group of players you want, the, the maybe formation you prefer, etc. Mm. And even the training system. Obviously, you've different managers have different training regimes and things like that. Yeah, I think um, I, I've. I'm quite simple in the way I do those sorts of things. Um, we we have a real challenge up at Carlisle. We have a challenge, firstly, because of the finances. We we don't have 
a lot of money to spend so we don't have we can't pay huge wages and we also have a challenge because of the location it's very very rarely do you get players who are really really happy to come and relocate back up to into the north mm-hmm. uh, up to Carlisle so we we have to be selective of the areas that we take players um we've been really lucky in the fact that Myself, Greg Abbott, Gavin Skelton, the assistant, and Paul Gerard, the goalkeeper coach, we've got really, really strong contacts and, and we've got a positive name in, in a lot of people's minds. So other clubs are prepared to help us and let players come in. So that's helped us on the recruitment side of it. Um, and we, we've managed to get some good permanent signings in, but we've also managed to get some good loan deals in as well, which have been really good for us. So that's been the first side of it. And then I try to keep things really simple in terms of the style of play. I don't go, I'm not, I'm not a one for taking risks um, in our final third, particularly from a stop start position Mm -hmm. from goal kicks and things like that. I don't believe that, you know, and, and I hope people take this the right way. This isn't me being disrespectful because I really do respect our players, but I don't see the need to put our players ability level under stress in our own 18-yard box. So it's not a case of let's let's play out from our goalkeeper at every opportunity. My view is you you minimise that risk. So I'm happy for centre-halves to play and to involve the goalkeeper in general play as we get a little bit further up the pitch. But I don't believe in inviting the press to, to risk losing the ball. So that's quite simple. I want players to express themselves when they're in the final third. And I believe that we've got a really good combination of players who who are doing that at the moment. The challenge for us, for, for us all, is can we do it over 46 games this mm-hmm. season to finish in a really strong position? That brings up a really interesting debate around coaches in the modern game and the kind of almost need to be seen as progressive. You need to be seen as playing this style of play. Mm. Is being seen as a pro- progressive coach or whatever people's understanding of that term means is that important to you or is that even important at all or is that something that has just become almost a fad in the modern age because people want to be seen as almost playing the right style of football yeah i think realistically results are kind of what matters and i know that's a bit of a cliche but it's Mm. it's the truth it is it depends what you want to do i mean i look at um i look at managers who've lost their jobs so far in in league two but if i just focus on that you know there's there's lots of managers losing their jobs which is horrible to see but i've watched a lot of clips and and i know i know some of the coaches you look at james robbery at newport i look at uh, robbie stockdale from rochdale kevin betsy from crawley and I've I've watched the clips of the games when we're, we're either when we're playing against them or when our opposition analysis is going on and we and they're playing against their teams and they've tried to play out from the back and they're giving the ball away and they're conceding goals and they're losing games on the back of it and you sort of sit and watch and think look I respect you for doing it and trying it you might have to think of a plan b here because it's not working it's not my place to say that to them and I never would do because it, they they have their own ideas but unfortunately they've lost the jobs on the back of it now, the way I see my job is, yes, I am a coach, but I'm a manager of the football club. And I know that if our results are not good, it doesn't matter what my long-term plan is, it won't happen. You have to have a short-term fix or even a short to medium-term fix to keep yourself in, in the job long enough to be able to execute a long-term plan. You know, when I, when I went in at um, Rochdale for my first managerial job, years or however many years ago it was I had this idea that I could change the players because I knew I knew what they were like I've been in the dressing room as a player with them and I thought I can change these I can change their mentality I can improve them and you realize very quickly probably a couple of months in I thought I can't change them this is the way they are this is their character this personality so the only thing you can do is change them by moving them on and, and bringing different players in. So I learned that very quickly. I never got a chance to to change that group at Rochdale um, because I left at the end of the season. Then I went into Carlisle United again and, and got the manager's job after a month or two. And we had a group of players that, in my opinion, 
and and results were dictating it as well. We were 17 points adrift at the bottom of League Two but when CVA got lifted. I realised they weren't good enough. So we had to change, bring different people into it. So I brought a mentality in, in people like Kevin Gray, uh, Tom Cowan, Andy Priest, and having those type of personalities in the dressing room brought players out of uh, out of a different situation like Chris Billy, who was already at the club, Peter Murphy. Um, they came out and became leaders as well for us. So it, you sort of realise that you have to get the right people into the um, into the building to create the environment to be able to get results. So going back to your original thing, yes, I respect that, that the people who want to play this progressive and, and, and new style of football like Manchester City do, we don't have Manchester mm -hmm. City's players. Yeah. So let's let's understand the level of player that we are. And I think that's what a coach is about, is understanding the level of players you have and working with that group. When I worked with England with the under-20s who won the World Cup in South Korea, we had some top footballers, so we could play. We could pass it. We could play through the thirds and start with a build and, and get into that create and then to finish through some really good football. I also remember goals that we scored where Freddie Woodman in goals would clip it up to the halfway line Dom Calvert-Lewin would flick it on for Dom Solanke and Dom Solanke would slide the ball and pass the goalkeeper and he'd win with two passes. So it's there's more ways than one to skin a cat yeah. and it's about getting results. And whether it be an under-20 World Cup finals where we needed a result because the players wanted to win or whether it's in League Two with Carlisle United where we need to win for me to stay in a job, for players to get bonuses, to, to supplement a, a, a lower salary, that's what it's all about in my opinion. Well, a man you know very well, we had on the podcast last week in Dean Holden, and he said something very similar. And he said that, mm -hmm. you know, when he was at Bristol, okay, if there was a short pass on, play it. But if there was a midfielder making a run in behind, well, then go mm -hmm. long. There's no shame in wanting to, if the pass is on, play it. Why would you want to, to compromise no. an easy option for complication almost and complexity to go, okay, we, I, we need to go short because I need to be seen as a, yeah, the next Guardiola. Also, mm. it is. That's what of... impressed me about Dean Holden as a head coach when I worked with him at Bristol, is that I'd come across Dean a few times on when he was at St George's Park, and I was at the FA, and obviously I had Dean as a player when I was at Shrewsbury, so I, I, I know Dean really well, and he was being talked about as a new, young, um, forward-thinking coach, and when I went in. Uh, that's what impressed me that, yes, he wanted to play the nice little bits of football, but it was also saying, no, if you can go long, yeah. then go long as well. And um, it's always a really strange perception because I remember when I was at Preston in my first year there, we had Danny Dickey up front and we had um, David Nugent playing mm -hmm. just off him. I had players like Simon Whaley, who was really direct and pacey and got crosses in. I had Graham Alexander playing right back who had an absolute wand of a right foot. Callum Davidson, left back who had a wand. They could both clip balls up to Danny Dicchio. He was so strong in the air, he would flick it on. Nuge was rapid and he would get on the end of it and he would score goals. And we were quite direct in the way we played it, but we also had players who could play. Paul McKenna was a footballer. Chris Sedgwick was a footballer. Um, Nobody mentioned we were a direct team because we were winning games. We went to the top of the championship. Then Deitch went to um, went over to America to play in the MLS. I forget who it was for now. It might have been Toronto or somebody. And we didn't have that target man striker, but we were still going long up to Patrick Adjaman or Michael Ricketts, who weren't as prolific in the air as, as Deitch was. And everybody started moaning that I was a long ball merchant. Well, I was no different to what I was before. Just unfortunately, the players weren't of the same level and we were losing games. So from going from playing one way and winning games, everything was fine. But then when it changed and we were losing games, I was a long ball merchant and I wasn't very good. Now, that's fine. Don't have a problem with that. But I didn't change. I didn't do anything differently. I did the same things. Now, it was wrong. I'm not saying I shouldn't have been sacked because I deserved to be sacked. Because um, results dictate that. Uh, it's just people's perception of, of of what they're seeing is 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 what causes the problems for you. Yeah. And how important is it then to have a, a flexible style of play 
because obviously there's going to be games where you're coming up against better opponents and maybe when you were in charge of, of England's under-20s, of course, you, you had incredible players and most of the time you were probably the favourites to win those games. But then you've also been a teams that that wasn't the case. So how important is it to have that flexible style of play where you can maybe sit a bit deeper or play a different way if you need to get a result? Yeah, I think it's massive because I, I think... This was something that I picked up from Mark Robson when Mark Robson came to be one of the assistant coaches with the FA. And Robbo used to always talk about having a framework to work from and then you make little tweaks to that framework as you're going along. And I thought it was a really good analogy to, to, to how he described it. So you have a you have a big frame of how you want to play and that might be um, the formation you play, it might be the personnel, the type of player you have in those particular roles but then you might make a little tweak depending on on the shape. And the way that we try to go about it at Carlisle is that I'm quite, um, I like to start games with a back three, um, a goalkeeper, a back three, two wing backs who are quite forward thinking and quite, um, I suppose, aggressive and open in the way they play. But then the, the five in front of that, I like to be quite fluid about it. So it can be one holding midfielder and two eights, or it can be two holding midfielders and a front three, uh, whether it's a, a two strikers and a number 10 or a nine, seven and 11, whatever. So I like to be quite fluid in that front five. And and you can change. And I think what you have to have for that is players who are adaptable. Um, there's been a few games where we've been chasing it. Um, last night I did it in the game against Barrow because of personnel that were available. We went to a back four um, and I've gone to, a, if, if we're playing against a team that's maybe only got one striker and we're not, we're finding that our outside centre-backs are not being able to go and join in, I'm quite comfortable to change it. But again, that comes down, That I don't believe that comes down to the coach. I think that comes down to having adaptable players, players who can adjust and, and are able to change and think, right, OK, I'm, I'm not playing in a back three now, I'm in a two, so I might have to play a little bit different. And thankfully, the players have been able to apply that most of the times this season. Last night, we didn't because we weren't very good all over. And, and my, I would say my preparation for the game wasn't the best that it could have been. So I looked at myself and I know I made mistakes and things like that last night. So hopefully the players will go away and also assess what they did in their preparation and also their performance and, and we can come up with a better better solution for the weekend. You sound like you reflect a lot on maybe your own mistakes or what you perceive as your own mistakes. You said there about when you were a Preston and you need you, you said you maybe should have changed the style of play and then you said last night maybe you made a mistake how important is reflection for a manager and for yourself oh I think you have to I think you've got to do it you know we every game I watch the game back again um, every day when I'm driving home from training or from a game whatever if it's on the coach or if I'm in the car I think about what I've done and how I've gone about it um, something that disappointed me a little bit really but um i had to take it on the chin was um people said that i made excuses all the time at uh, at preston and 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 i think some of that was done um i got stitched up by a newspaper after one game where we're going to the press conference we're drawn nil nil at home um, when i was manager at preston and i go into the press conference like the, the format was i do the in-house media i do the local radio and maybe the local tv and then it's opened up to the national papers so one of the first questions was um do you think you can do anything about the atmosphere inside the ground at the start of games and i said well i, I don't really you can't have a go at the fans because yes fans come in to support the team but sometimes the players have to lift mm -hmm. the fans we can't always expect fans to lift us we have to give them something to be lifted and they said to me, well, do you think changing the run-out music would, would change it? And I said, well, I'll be honest with you, I don't even know what the players run out to because I'm not out there at that point. I said, but listen, if you change the music then and that helps, then anything, do whatever, but I don't know what it is. So then on the Monday morning, the, the Sun newspaper ran the headline, now Simpson blames Elvis Presley because we ran out an Elvis Presley song. So the, the Preston fans jumped onto this and said, oh, he just makes excuses. Mm -hmm. Well, that's not what I said. I didn't know it was an Elvis song we ran out to. 
So then when I eventually results are still going bad and I've got the sack, that gets thrown back at me that I'm making excuses and blaming everybody else. So that disappointed me a little bit because I, I do go away and I think about everything that I do. Um, every day I think about conversations I've had with players and with staff and could I have spoken to them better? Should I have said that in a different way? Did I get the right message across? Did Did I get everything out of the session that I wanted to? Have the players gone away today knowing what we're going to expect in the game on Saturday and did mm. we do everything? So you, you question everything um, that you're doing or, or that's how I go about it because I know that I don't do everything right. I know that I make mistakes. I'm a human being. I've got loads and loads of plates I'm trying to spin and trying to keep the whole football club ticking over. Um, so it's a difficult challenge. So, yeah, I do. I do reflect on everything. And if I go back to last night's game against Barrow on we made a decision, it was a seven o'clock kickoff. And um, as a group of staff, we made a decision that we weren't going to go for pre-match last night. We were just going to get on the coach, get to Barrow, play the game and move on. Because and when, when I thought about it, I'm thinking, well, if it's a seven o'clock kickoff, you need to have pre-match three and a half hours before. So that's half past three. We have some lads travel from Preston. So that means they're leaving at half past two when they're going to have lunch, when they're going to do this. And you start to try to get a picture in your mind. So I'll just, we, as a staff, we said, right, no, let's not do pre-match. And it was nothing to do with saving money at all. Um, it was, we think this is the right thing to do. And then on Sunday, when I'm sitting, thinking about the next few days, how we prepare for choosing our game, I started questioning myself, have I done the right thing? Does it give off the perception that I'm not taking the game seriously because it's a Papa John's? which was not the case. I really did want to win it. So I'm already starting to question myself. So then when we turn up and we didn't perform anywhere near the level, then I look at myself and think, right, I was wrong there. I shouldn't have done that because I gave the wrong, maybe I gave the wrong perception. I looked at myself in terms of team selection. I played, a, we, we had a team picked. We did our preparation on uh, Monday morning. We got to the end of the session and we went through defending set plays to start with and then we're moving on to attacking. And Ben Barkley, who's been out for 10 weeks maybe, has, or he was injured for 10 weeks and has been back training now for two or three, fully fit, ready to go. He's had no issues. The last wide free kick we were defending, he goes up, clears the ball, lands with nobody around him, jars his ankle again. So he's carried off the training pitch and I have a decision to make then. Do I bring a 17-year-old in to replace him and play my right wing back at centre-back? So there's two changes then. Or do I just say, right, no, Corey Whelan, who played at the weekend, but also has a, a got trodden on on the weekend and has a sore ankle, I'm going to play Corey. Corey said he was okay. I want to carry on. I want to play. Um, and I shouldn't have done it. I should have left him out because he was struggling. So again, those things I look at and, and I blame myself for that. That was a poor decision from me or the wrong decision from me. Um, I did it for the right reasons, but I made a wrong call on it. So I think you have to, you've got to analyse everything you do. You've got to review everything you do. Sometimes you might just sit and go, do you know what? Most of that was okay, but it doesn't always happen that way. There's, there's always... Was, that, was that always something you did then throughout your coaching career or was it just something you maybe developed in over time? I think it's probably something that I didn't do great early on because I um, I probably spread myself too thin early on. When I went in as my first job at Rochdale, I was player manager. Mm -hmm. I, in that first year, I was I was doing my dissertation for my sports science degree. I was on my A license coaching badge, and I was player manager at Rochdale. So I had loads, and and I was also a dad to three boys and trying to be a good husband as well. So you, you've got so many things you're trying to do um, that I spread myself too thin on that and took my eye off the ball. Carlisle went well. Carlisle was really good. But again, I, I was a player manager then. But the thing that benefited me was that I picked up an injury. So I wasn't having to think about playing. I could mm -hmm. focus on managing and, and dealing with the stuff. Preston, I went in there and... Um, to a really bad situation where all of the staff, Billy Davis's staff resigned and all left one by one to go to Derby County, put me in a situation where I had to assemble a full group of staff. So I needed to change the football in the community, the academy, the first team, 
Um, I also had to try and balance the books at Preston where selling players left, right and centre, keeping the club going, keeping the club funded. Um, I didn't didn't bring players in good enough to replace the ones who were leaving um, and, and it didn't really work for us in that side of it. So I spread myself too thin there and it took... I got to a point where um, Jamie Hoyland, who is my best mate, Jamie Hoyland, was, was the youth team coach and he just pulled me one day and just said, what are you doing? I was like... I don't know what do you mean. He said, I watch you wandering around the training ground. And he took a pair, a pair of balls to say this because I was the manager and he was the youth coach. He said, I watch you wandering around the training ground and you look lost. You're not doing what you do. So get back to doing what you do. Otherwise, you're going to get the sack. Unfortunately, it was too late. Um, by the time I tried to change and go back to doing what I do, um, the nails were already being hammered into the coffin lid and, and that was me done. So I, I learned from there that I needed to, you know, I needed to be a, a better at doing things and understanding what was going on. So now I, I don't try and do everything. I've got better at delegating to other people. Um, and I, I think I've got, um, I think I've got more empathy for, for other people inside the building that, that hopefully will help me stay in a job for a bit longer. And how do you spread out then? Because this is always something I've been so, I'm always interested in, in terms of when the players are training and you're in a league where there's 46 games, plus if you make the playoffs, there's more. And then there's, you have obviously the the, the Papa John's trophy as well. Mm. How do you spread out training, days off, match days, things like that, mm. all into one? And then, like, would you, before games, maybe only try in one day before each game if there's a midweek match? Because the players do have to have time off as well. Yeah, it's really difficult. It It is difficult. And that's why a lot of times you're not actually coaching. You, it's People talk about having coaches and being a best coach. Mm -hmm. it, it's not like that because, you know, this week, for example, we, we, we played on Saturday at home at a really, really good result, an excellent performance. On Saturday, I had uh, 19 players available for the game on Saturday. So I gave them Sunday off to recover. Um, and, and I always think there's a, there's, there's a, there's a, um, a balance between doing what is the best thing for the players physically, but also what's right mentally. So I'm saying that because on a Sunday, the ideal scenario would be to bring everybody in to do a recovery after the game to get ready for Tuesday. We have a lot of players who live an hour and a half away from, mm -hmm. from Carlisle. And we have a lot of players who stay up during the week, um, but then go home on a weekend to see their families. You know, some, some of the lads have got uh, partners and children in different parts of the country, Stockport, uh, Preston, Harrogate, these sort of areas. So if we bring them in on a Sunday, they're missing out on another opportunity to go home and see their family. And, and I think that the physical benefit is outweighed by the mental, mental negative effect that you get from bringing them in. So we don't bring them in on a Sunday. We let them go home. We trust them to recover the, themselves. Then on a Monday, we come in and they're still on a second day recovery from a game. So you can't do a lot of work. Um, and then it, because it was a Papa John's game as well, I try to to make sure I look after players who are playing regularly. So we have a you know, Paul Huntingdon's a senior player who um, we, we we want to keep available. Um, Jack Armour and Finn Back are two wing backs who've ran their socks off so far this season. So I look at that as an opportunity to give them a bit of a breather. Um, so we have players who, who we need to look after. Then I had um, Corey Whelan went off injured. So I'm then down to probably 16, 17 players who we've got available for the game. So I try to rotate the group around so everybody feels involved. So you can only do a little bit of work on the Monday to take into the Tuesday game. We played Tuesday night, we didn't play very well. But again, I give them a rest day on Wednesday. We'll come in on Thursday. There'll probably be four or five players who will need to do a recovery session again. So we can't get them all out on the grass. And then you have a Friday where you want to try and conserve as much energy as possible so you can do minimal preparation for the game to take into a game against Leighton Orient on Saturday, who are one of the early season pace setters. So it's really difficult. Now, 
this isn't just me. This is every club. Richie Wellens will have the same with Orient because they played against Chelsea last night and conceded two goals in 89 and 93 minutes to lose it. So he will have been raging. We'll want to make sure the players recover today and get them freshened up, ready to go again. So we're all in the same boat. And it's a big challenge is, is how much training you do, how much coaching you can do to make sure that when they go out on a Saturday, they have got as much energy as possible to go and perform. Because ultimately, that's where we all get judged, out on a Saturday afternoon. Mm-hmm. And Paul, in probably the decade before you took this job, you were at a number of different roles. I mean, you were assistant with Steve McLaren at Derby and at Newcastle, and then obviously you were the uh, Bristol City under Dean Holden too, and then the uh, the England under-20s man- under manager. How did those experiences in those different roles help you now to make you a better manager? Cool. Wow. Well, I think firstly, I think having an experience of being a manager helped me in the assistant role because I think I always say to people, unless you've actually been in that hot seat, mm-hmm. I don't think you understand what it all entails, what goes with the job and what the pressure is not the right word because it's not pressure, but the, you know, the expectation that's on a manager. I don't think you realize until you're in that job. And um, I think it really helped me working with, with Steve McLaren, the fact that I'd been in there um, and, and had a manager's job. But after, um, I had a really, really good run in management. I didn't didn't know I was going to go into management. I got offered a job at Rochdale and thought, I'm going to take it. Don't really know if I fancy it, but I might never get another chance. And then it all snowballs. It, it, it didn't go magnificent for me at Rochdale, but there was still lots of good things I learned. Carlisle was very good. Preston was good for a short time. And then results went and I got the sack. I went into Shrewsbury very quickly. Um, we had a good start and and sort of first 16, 17 months were very good. The last year, not so good. Um, so I moved on from there and I very quickly, probably too quickly, got persuaded that Stockport County might be a good idea to go and manage that because they had this five-year plan to talk to me about and they realised the first year was going to be horrendous and all that and I agreed to do it. And... Um, I should never have done it. Within six months, they decided to sack me. Um, and again, results were really poor. So on, on results alone, I had to be sacked. Um, simple as that. I've got no no problem with that. But I, but I wasn't, I didn't take the job. Um, or, or the reasons I took the job weren't actually how it all panned out. They changed, they moved the goalposts very quickly once I got in there. So that's that's life. But from that point, I realized that I needed to come out of management and have, I talked about a five-year plan of not being a manager, coming away and learning from other people, seeing how other people do it. Sometimes I would think, you know what? I did that part of it okay when I was managing, but other times you go, you know what, that's a really good thing. I'm going to use that when I get another opportunity. Um, And I did lots and lots of things. I worked for the Premier League as a technical match observer. So I was watching lots of academy football, meeting some really interesting people, working for a fantastic organisation in the Premier League. I got a job out in Portugal, working in an academy out there for about... When when it says it on... When I was researching for this podcast, I said that you went to Portugal. There was so little information on it. I, yeah. I, I didn't want to pry, but I was curious to know what the role was in Portugal. Yeah, it was um, it was a really interesting role because uh, I um, it was an academy that was set up called Vision Sports, uh, Vision Vision Pro Sports, uh, VSI, and um, it was an academy that was funded by Premier League players um, who were paying into this scheme to try and help players who've been released at 16 to get a second chance. Um, a few years ago, Glenn Hoddle did it with his academy out in Spain um, and, and it didn't really work. And then a couple of people from, from down south decided to set it up again with some some Premier League investors in it. Um, they started in La Manga and they realised the costs were really high over there and Bobby Davison was in charge. And then they then moved over to Portugal, um, in a, a little little city called Rio Maior, which is about 45 minutes outside of Lisbon, between on the A1 between Lisbon and, um, and Porto. Really good facility there um, in Rio Maior. And we had boys from England, Spain, 
Portugal and Hungary who all came in. And it was my job. I, I, when Bobby left, I, I got asked to go and take it on. Unfortunately, very quickly, I'd gone from having myself, a fitness coach, an assistant coach, a physio, an education officer, a welfare officer, physio, masseur. I had all of these roles very quickly. It was, you're going to have to get rid of your assistant. We haven't got the money for a welfare officer. So I ended up doing loads and loads, which was brilliant education, good experience to live over there. Mm-hmm. Unfortunately, the company, um, they tried to expand and go into America and trying to get a a team over there um, in Tampa and trying to get an MLS franchise. They spent loads and loads, hundreds of thousands of dollars trying to do this. That fleeced the company. um, And although Europe was with was mine was the European arm of it, we were okay financially because I literally got sent over something anywhere between 40 and 45,000 euros a month would get sent. And it was my job to do the budgeting and pay the physio, pay the fitness coach, pay the boys a little bit of pocket money for each week. I had to spend the money accordingly. Sadly, I didn't pay myself. My wages were paid separately and I ended up losing out on a hell of a lot of money when the company went bust and we had to close it down. So I left with, a huge debt in my bank account, um, but a really good experience. And I have been assured by one of the guys who runs the company that one day I'll receive a check to pay me back, but I'm not holding my breath. That's for sure. <laughs> <laughs> Paul, what was it like then when you worked in the Premier? Obviously, you worked with Steve McLaren at Derby and then you moved to, to Newcastle. What was that experience like? Because you were in the, I mean, the Premier League and it was, mm. I mean, I'd imagine that the level of players was like something yeah, you've never seen. It was before. brilliant. Um, I mean, I'll be honest with you, my experience of working with Steve at Derby County was much better. That was a brilliant place to be, Derby County. Well, you we just had... missed out on the playoffs, didn't you? Yeah, I, mean, I did, remember yeah. that game. Yeah. yeah. We missed we lost in the we lost in the playoff final yeah. against QPR. Um still to this day don't know how we didn't score for bit to win that game but we didn't so we missed out the next year we we had a really good start we got battered with injuries um loads and loads of injuries which which didn't help us we missed out on playoffs and um mel morris made the decision to sack steve and then i left as well um there was a lot of talk of steve going to newcastle united at the time but he turned it down um, I he asked my opinion at the end of the season and I said, no, we don't go. It's not the right place to go. This is a better place to be at Derby County. We, we're, we're two year, two seasons into a three-season plan and I really do believe this is a better place to be. So he turned it down and then he got the sack the week later um, from Derby. I got the sack, I don't know what it was, maybe a month later, something like that. Um, but it was a real sour taste to the way it all finished at yeah. Derby County and then when I got the sack uh, Steve said to me look I want you to come straight into Newcastle uh, just come get in the car come straight up to Newcastle and start with me straight away so I did it um, but I knew it wasn't going to be I knew it wasn't going to be an easy job and at the time I've got to say it was a bit of a poison chalice as much as it is an absolutely magnificent football club, incredible support, an incredible fan base. Um, and I always say it should have been one of the best jobs I've ever had in my life. And it was probably one of the worst just because the whole environment was toxic. The The players weren't happy with the club. The fans weren't happy with the club. Um, there were so many issues going on. And again, results-wise, it was inevitable that we weren't going to last. Um, that did almost seem to be like a boiling point for Newcastle because they did they they went down at the end of that season. I know mm. it was under uh, Rafa at the time, but yeah. it was it did seem to be the kind of the real tipping point for the club that yeah. the players just probably weren't good enough, and the fans were really against the owner. Yeah, yeah, there was so many things that weren't quite right, and. Um, you know, it took, we, we were in a situation where myself and Steve were, were talking about the things that needed to change for us to have a fighting chance. Because I, it wasn't just Steve McLaren. It, I always thought of us, it was us. It was the mm-hmm. two of us together who, who, 
we had other stuff, obviously, but I was, you know, it was, I always look at it as me and Steve were in it together. Um, and we had many discussions about what we needed to do and when would, when could we do it? And Steve kept saying, look, we don't, my view was we need to do it now. If we don't do it now, they're going to see us out of the club. We need to make these changes. And Steve's view was no, they've told me when I'm going to get three transfer windows. We've got the time, three transfer windows would have took us to the, August, the summer window of the following season. And I kept saying, no, we're not going to get three. If we don't sort it out in two, we'll be gone. Um, and he said, no, be patient. I've got to trust them. This is what they've told me. And then ultimately we got to, and um, we, we went after that. And again, I, I can't, I can't say we didn't deserve the sack because results dictated it, that we, that we had to go, there had to be changes. But then Rafa came into the club and within two days, he come and said, right, this, 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 these need to be changed. And it was done straight away. And they nearly had a, they had a bit of a fighting chance yeah. of staying up then. But it was so blatantly obvious to anybody who had any football idea what needed to change at the club. And, and, and I mean, we weren't going to change Mike Ashley. And I personally... Yeah. Didn't have a bad experience with Mike Ashley. He's a top, top guy, top guy. Um, got no complaints about him. There was other things inside the club that need to needed to be changed to try and make it better and to make it a more positive environment. Um, but we weren't able to do it. And Rafa came in and did it. Um, and they gave him license to make football decisions, which really... Steve didn't have that free yeah. to do it. Um, and it makes it a really difficult job when it's like that. I just have two more questions because I'm aware we're at 40 minutes now. But when you were in the Premier League, you obviously, you coached against, I mean, there was Louis van Gaal was there at the time, Jürgen Klopp, Jose Mourinho, Arsene Wenger. Were there any nuggets of information that you got from these coaches that maybe some advice they gave you or Steve that you could share with us that were... That, that that helped you still now? Yeah, now I've got to say it was fascinating listening to them, um, but they didn't give anything away. Um, they, were just, <laughs> they, were, they were really decent people. Um, yeah. You know, I, I remember I remember playing against Liverpool at St James's Park and the way that Jurgen Klopp stands on the halfway line and watches the opposition warming up and I was stood about 10 yards away taking a little possession drill and feeling intimidated by Jurgen just stood on me as if he was sat on my shoulder watching. And he still uh, does that. He still, he does, still does it, yeah, and he does it. And I'm sure he does it for that reason because he's quite an imposing yeah. physique anyway and he just stares at you. So I just remember that thinking, wow, that's that's really powerful how you do that. If you're talking about trying to get any sort of psychological advantage, you've done it there. Um, but they don't give anything away. But I just think the things that I learned was just watching, um, and this I can't really say this about many of the Newcastle players, but watching the top players working um, when you're coming up against them, their levels of ability but also their level of application. You know, it's I, I don't... Hard work is a basic that you have to apply in everything, but it's not the sole thing that you have to focus on. But these top players, they work their socks off, but they also have the ability to be able to go with it. And I looked at, you know, we, we were fortunate. We had... We had um, Ginny Wijnaldum at, at Newcastle, who was a top, top guy. Lovely I think he bloke. scored against Liverpool in that game, he I did. remember, didn't he? Yeah, yeah, he did, yeah. So Ginny was a top bloke to start with, a really good person. Great attitude to work and unbelievable ability. Then we had um, Mitro, Alexandra Mitrovic, who I spent so many days back out on the training ground with him, having to put crosses in for him to finish and driving balls up to him to get hold of it. His dedication to be the best he could was incredible. Unfortunately, at Newcastle, it just didn't work out for him. It was probably too early. He needed to go to the Championship and score goals there. And I'm delighted to see him getting goals in the Premier League now for Fulham. But it took a bit of time. But his desire to be the best he could was brilliant. And that was something that really impressed me about working at Premier League level, probably more than any nuggets that I was able to, yeah. to pick off any of the managers who we worked against. And Mitrovic is actually Serbia's all-time top goal scorer as well, which is yeah. incredible, yeah. Yeah. Paul, the last question I want to ask you is, and I ask this to every guest because I love getting their answers, who have been your biggest inspirations, coaching inspirations or family, et cetera, or friends throughout your career so far? 
wow there's a whole host of them i think if um to start with it was my dad um so I wanted to do well for my dad because of the amount of hours he used to spend driving me up and down the country to places so you want to do well for him um and then when you have when they get married and you have children you want to you want to be able to do things well for for my wife and for my three boys and to make them proud so that they they sort of drive you on in football in terms i think um if I look at managers, I, I, I took things from managers along the way, uh, some positive, some negatives that you think, right, don't do that. Um, but the combination of Jim Smith and Steve McLaren at Derby County were absolutely brilliant, a, a brilliant partnership. So I took management things from Jim. Um, and I, I, I really enjoyed Steve McLaren, the way he worked as an assistant and as a coach when I was a player. And then coming into management myself, I think I've learned a lot from, um, well, you learn a lot from the mistakes you make anyway. That's the first thing. But I've picked things up from from working as an assistant with Steve, with with Dean Holden, working in the FA and seeing how Gareth Southgate and Steve Holland work together. Um, I, I've picked up. So there's loads and loads that you, you learn from along the way. And I just look at it that my view on football is when I, I left Carlisle in 1982 to go to Manchester City, with a dream of being a professional footballer and you start out thinking, I just hope it works. And now I'm 56 and I'm still involved in professional football. And as well as all of the things that I've picked up, I just think I'm really lucky and thankful to still be involved in it. That's a lovely answer. Paul, this has been an amazing interview. Thank you so much for coming on. And I wish yourself and Carla, I mean, you're smashing at the minute, but I wish you all the best for the forthcoming season. Pleasure. Thanks very much. Thanks, Paul. Paul was a fantastic guest. He was so open and honest, and I learned a lot from him, and I hope you did too. If you enjoyed the podcast, please rate us five stars. And if you didn't, please do it anyway. Thank you. I'll see you all next week for another episode of the TFA podcast, where we'll have another very exciting guest for you all. Have a great week, and goodbye for now.